0: Well, we're in John 4 today, and I have, this is a bit of a challenge today because I have a very long text. And when I have a very long text, I'm always like, is there something, is there another way to do this that, that perhaps wouldn't be, uh, that wouldn't re, uh, require me just straight up reading it to you? And uh, the answer that I came up with is that no, I don't have a better idea than to just read it to you. And so I want to encourage you, this is one of the, the best stories in the gospel of John. We're going to look at the Samaritan woman at the well today in John chapter 4. And it is my goal of this story. There are things in this text that, are, that, that bring questions up that we would like answers to. My goal is to help us get past all of that and just see the beauty of what Jesus does in these few verses in John chapter 4. So let's look together at John 4 1 through 42. I will skip a couple of those. I'll let you know when we're going to skip so you can continue to follow. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water, springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty And come here to draw water. Go, call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews said that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Or in Jerusalem, You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her jar, went into town, and told the people, come, see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Here, I'll skip down to verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Because of what the woman said, when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, many more belie- I'm sorry, he stayed there two days, many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, "We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the savior of the world." This is a fantastic story. And so what I want to do, if you have a handout in front of you, uh, we can begin filling into some blanks right away. I just want to walk through the different steps, the different uh, parts of the process that happened in this conversation with between Jesus and the woman at the well. First, we see that Jesus engages with the woman. He engages with her. It says, we're going to go... Back to verse 7, a woman of Samaria, Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. She responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There is a lot of significant truth in those couple of verses right there. First of all, you're pro- if, you, if you've been around church for a while, you're probably familiar with the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were, were people who had descended originally from Jews, but they were Jews who broke the laws of the Old Testament and intermarried with people that they weren't supposed to intermarry with, and they, they became less than Jewish. They became, you know, it's a little more crude perhaps than they would think of it, but they were sort of like half-breeds. They were part Jew, but part other nations and other people. And because of that, the the pure Jews, the Jews who did not break the Old Testament law and intermarry, had resentment towards them. And there was deep tension and resentment between the Jews and the Samaritans. You may remember hearing that from passages like the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus plays on the irony of, in uh, speaking to Jews, the irony that a Samaritan could actually be good. And he, he, he kind of highlights the fact that in the story that he told, the Samaritan behaved better than the Jewish people. And, and so Jesus is aware of this, of course. He is a Jew. with Samaritans, let alone a woman who's out here in the middle of the day, and well, we'll get into some of, some of the elements of, of her lifestyle and things. This story in, in the Gospel of John is placed just a few verses after Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And we see here an important contrast between Nicodemus. Nicodemus was everything that this woman wasn't. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious man. He was a leader in his community. He was well-respected. He was educated. He was trained in the law. He was everything that this woman isn't. She's a Samaritan, She's a woman. She has no or or little social status. She's been unsuccessful even in the most basic relationships of her life. We have this contrast between this very religious, successful, uh, highly esteemed man among the Jewish community and this lowly woman from Samaria. What's important not to miss in John's gospel here is that Jesus offers his mercy Jesus offers eternal life to both of them. He has successfully incorporated both ends of the social spectrum and he has has communicated to both of them the same need for eternal life and the same need for salvation and has freely offered to both of them his mercy and his grace. Nicodemus needed to be born again. The woman from Samaria needed to be born again. We need to be born again. And that's what Jesus offers. He brings eternal life. He comes to be the savior of the world in their words. So Jesus engages with the woman. He, he, he initiates this conversation. He crosses, he, he, he breaks down the social divide, and, and he crosses against the grain of the social norms, and he engages with this woman, and he finds her where she's at. He himself in the position to be speaking to Jesus. Nicodemus was a religious man. His life revolved in a lot of ways around pursuing God and knowing God and, and having a uh, the type of conversation that he would have with Jesus in John chapter 3. This woman, on the other hand, is far from God. She barely has any religion at all. I mean, she's, she speaks of these things, you know, these, these sort of ideas that they have as Samaritans, but she is far from, is involved as this Pharisee Nicodemus. And, you know, I think Nicodemus did the right things we're we're called to pursue God we are called to be more like Nicodemus it is the meaning and the purpose of our lives to be in relationship with God yet the beauty of the gospel is that even when we have failed to do that Jesus comes to us and he meets us where we're at and that's what he does with this woman it's it's beautiful she didn't deserve to be talking to if Jesus is who they're about to say he is what has she done to put herself in this position? Unlike Nicodemus, she's not concerned with these things. She's just out here li- living her life and, and, and really doing nothing to put herself in this position. And yet Jesus seeks her out. That reminds me, I think, back to my own salvation experience. When I really wasn't doing any of the things that God had told me to do in terms of what he, the commands he gives to humanity as a whole. I wasn't seeking him. I wasn't even going to church. I wasn't I wasn't reading the Bible. I wasn't seeking after God, and yet he met me there. I just think it's beautiful that God comes to the religious man who had put himself in the position, and he says, you need eternal life, and I offer it to you, and that he also comes to this, this wild woman who's living a life apart from all of that, and he says, you need eternal life, and I've come to bring it to you. He is an incredible Savior. So he engages with the woman. The next thing he does is he points To her need for eternal life. Jesus points her to her need for eternal life. If you look at verse 10 and the couple of verses following, it says this Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. So Jesus immediately turns this conversation around. He starts with the simple request, well, really a command. It's not a request. He says, give me a drink. And she says, what are you doing? Are you talking to me? I mean, there's, there's nobody else out there that we know of. It's, it's just him and her, uh, and she's baffled that he would even acknowledge her. I mean, we might be baffled that he wouldn't acknowledge her. Why, if two people encounter each other uh, in such close proximity to each other with nobody else around, you almost feel obligated to say something. But this speaks to the deep divide between Jew and Samaritan and the, the sort of cultural norms at the time where a man would not engage with a woman in this situation. But he surprises her. He asks for a drink. And he immediately uses that opportunity to point her to her need, not his. I mean, Jesus needed water. He's out in the desert. If you've ever ever been in an arid climate, some of you have lived in places like that, like Arizona or something. Uh, Water is important. It's really important. We get annoyed with water. We have too much water. Water bothers us. Like, why is there all this water? But a lot of places in the world, including where they're at now, water is life, and Jesus uses that to point her to what she needs, not what he needs. If you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, "Give me a drink," you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And she points out the obvious, sir, you don't even have a bucket. And this well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Same thing that happened in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus immediately starts to talk about things that transcend the natural. Remember when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again? And Nicodemus's response is, what are you talking about? I, supposed to, I don't think my mom would be okay with that. <laughs> he didn't understand that Jesus was moving beyond the natural into the spiritual. We see the same thing happen here. But she's starting to pick up on it. She says, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. There are some things that Jews and Samaritans had in common. The Samaritans, uh, in terms of of Scripture, held to the first five books, what's called the Pentateuch, the, the five books of the Bible written by Moses. And in those first five books are the story of Jacob and how this well came to be. This is this this well goes back centuries to when Jacob lived in this land. She's she's drawing on the common ground. You're not better, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. Again, Jesus is drawing on the insufficiency of the old covenant this is a huge emphasis in John's gospel we saw this when Jesus turns the water into wine we saw this when Jesus interacts with nicodemus and says the vision that god gave in the old testament in this in this story jacob's well the provision that god gave in the old covenant is not enough if you keep drinking this you'll need to drink it again and again and again that is the the thing about the old covenant that Jesus comes to change whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again in fact the water I will I will give him will become a well of water springing up for in him for eternal life and so not only will you will you live but you will become a conduit of life to others she's about to become that very conduit we're going to see that when we get to the end of this story how not only does she experience the life-giving water that this savior gives but she is going to take that she is going to become a well of water springing up in, in him for eternal life she is going to take that to other people who are going to experience the same life So she says in verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. This image of needing to receive the water of life from the Savior goes all the way back into the Old Testament. God at one point rebukes his people, the nation of Israel. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed a double evil, They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. One of the things that we do in life that this woman exemplifies is that we try to find life in the wrong places. She, you know, we're not, a lot of speculation is made about her lifestyle. We'll get to that in a minute where she, Jesus highlights the fact that she had many husbands, I think that's very, at the very least symbolic of, of the idea that all of us are are trying to find life none of us want to live an empty life none of us want to live apart from the, the the life that god gives we just don't always know how to find it or if we do know how to find it we resist we resist the way to finding it that we that has been revealed and and that's what's true in old testament israel they dug cisterns for themselves. The problem with digging our own cisterns, which is just imagery for saying, the, the problem with trying to find life our own way is that those are cracked cisterns. They can't hold water. I mean, try to fill up a, a bucket with a crack in the bottom of it. It's futile. It's not going to hold. It's not going to last. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. So it is with trying to find life apart from this living well, Jesus, the Savior of the world. When we go our own way and try to, try to get life in our, on our own terms and do it our own way, we're just like this woman out there searching, striving, seeking after something that's going to satisfy and finding time and again that it does not work. Cracked cisterns that can't. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to keep seeking and straining and working and trying to find life in places that aren't ever going to satisfy. I'm here. The Savior is here. I have come not only to give you life, but so that you could give life to the people around you. He points to her need for eternal life. The next thing he does is that he reveals who he is. This is on the handout. Jesus reveals who he is. He says to her, go call your husband and come back here. If there's one thing that this woman probably doesn't want to talk to Jesus about, it's her history of relationships. Go call your husband. But Jesus never shies away from the sore subjects of our lives. If, If we're going to experience life, if we're going to experience eternal life and become a conduit of life to other people, then Jesus has to expose the ugliest parts of our lives so that he can bring salvation and healing. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you have had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, I come from a family uh, where there, I've, I've been shown two different ways of handling marriage. On one side of my family, um, there's a, sort of, I'd say, a history of lifelong commitment. Very little divorce. On the other side of my family, um, marriage is considered completely dispensable. Uh, and and on, on that side of that family, I, I was just thinking about this recently because on that side of the family, um, one of my cousins invited me to come and do his wedding. They, don't, they live out of state. And it hit me, I have never been to a wedding on that side of my family. Not one. One. And I was like, why have I never been invited to their weddings? And I realized, because they don't have weddings. They get married. They just go to the justice of peace or whatever it is in their state, and they get married. And, and, and it's nothing within months or a couple of years later to go back to the courthouse and get divorced and it's just this cycle. And, I, and, and that's not unusual or abnormal at all on that side of my family. And so when I hear this story, I, I think of people like that in my own life. And I think, you know, they're not, some of us read this story and we think, oh, she must have been like this enormous outcast in her town. And we read into the idea that she's out there in the middle of the day and that's because she wasn't allowed to go out at other times. I don't know that any of that is true. In fact, there's things in the story that point to her lifestyle. She may have not been all that ostracized because in a couple of verses, she's going to go tell the people about this Messiah and they're actually going to listen. But regardless of, of, of what all of that means, she has, she has um, just kind of allowed herself to fall into this lifestyle of re- this repeated seeking after something that's going to be better, something that's going to work, something that's going to satisfy And Jesus wants to talk to her about that. He wants to have a conversation with her about what she has been doing. And in doing so, he's revealing himself. How could he possibly know this about her? He shouldn't even be talking. He's a Jew. What does he know about this woman from Sychar in Samaria? Well, he knows a lot, and that gets her attention. Verse 19, sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Okay, so she has a spiritual question. It's a question that's important to her. Everybody has spiritual questions. Everybody, if we get, in, if we get into the conversation with somebody that we think might have answers that we've wondered about for a long time, is going to ask those questions. And that's what she's doing. This guy is a prophet. There's, he, he knows things. Let me ask him about this. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. This is a conversation about the different views of how to worship God between Jews and Samaritans. They each had come to different conclusions about how this should take place. Jesus is saying, I'm about to to dissolve all of that. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. So he upholds the teaching of the Old Testament. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. One of the things that they had in common was this expectation of somebody who was prophesied for the Samaritans in the Pentateuch, for the Jews throughout all of the Old Testament, not just the first five books. Both of them had this expectation of somebody coming to bring greater revelation, somebody coming to restore the one speaking to you, am he. It's incredible. That's incredible. There wasn't a Jewish man alive that would have spoken to this woman. And now she's finding out that the long-awaited Messiah, that the one that that the scriptures spoke about, that people had been waiting in anticipation of for hundreds of years, Has chosen to speak to her, this changes her life. What does she do? The woman goes and tells the town. That's the next thing on the handout. She goes and tells the town. Let me get a couple more. These. I'm going to move quickly through these last couple, and then I want to bring us back to the big picture here. The woman goes and tells the town. It says in verse 28, Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. Again, this I don't. I don't know that we can settle the debate of what this relationship, this woman's relationship was with the people of her town, because typically women who are extremely ostracized and uh, considered uncredible would not have gotten this type of response. Her testimony is convincing. Her testimony at least raises the curiosity of they want to know more. They left the town and made their way to him. The simple act. Of this woman telling the people around her even the little bit that she knows about Jesus results in the salvation of many human beings. That's all she did. She did not go to Bible college before she went and told her town. She did not have the answers to her own questions about Jesus. She simply went and said, this is what I know so far about Jesus. And that was enough. Jesus worked within that. He tells the town, the next thing is that to bring many other people to salvation. That's the next thing. The woman goes and tells the town, the next thing is that many believe because of her testimony. There's a very important progression through this story. She meets Jesus He reveals himself to her, right? She goes and tells them what little she knows about Jesus so far. Many believe because of her testimony. We see that right here in verse 39. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. Now, is that some sort of articulate theological doctrinal truth or statement does she understand all of the nuances of Jesus's relationship with those he came to save no she simply tells what she knows so far this guy knows everything I ever did so when the Samaritans came to him they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days So the woman tells the town, many believe because of her testimony. Now, here's the next and final uh, step in this progression. Many more believe when they see for themselves. Many more believe when they see for themselves. So here's the end of our passage. And then what I'm going to do in a couple of weeks, by the way, is I because I skipped part when I read today. I skipped a few verses uh, in between the woman leaving and going to her town and then the town coming out and inviting Jesus to come and stay and, and everything. There's this interaction with the disciples, which is... A, a, we're gonna. I'm going to come back to that in a couple of weeks because it's a, it's a fantastic interaction. And it's, there's a very important application there for us. But I've skipped that today. I wanted to stick with the story of Jesus, this woman, and the town. And then we'll come back later and look at how Jesus' disciples uh, come into play here. Many more believe when they see for themselves. Verse 41. Many more believe because of what he said. So he said... And they told the woman "Is the Savior because of what you said since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. The simplicity and the beauty of this story that I'm trying not to muddy up but just trying to let it sit out there so that you see it is that Jesus comes to a sinner who needs to experience eternal life who needs to have her sins forgiven, who needs to find the mercy of a Savior, he comes to her and he says, I am such a Savior. I am he. I'm not only the one who's come to answer your theological questions about worship, I'm the one who came to save your soul. And even the darkest parts of your life, Even your greatest sins, don't scare me away, they're the reason that I came. And then in response to that, this woman believes, and with the simplest of testimonies, she goes and tells the people within her sphere of influence. She just simply goes back to the people that she lives around and says, you got to meet this guy. Could this be the Messiah? He told me everything I ever did. And in response to her simple testimony, people believed in Jesus. But then something really cool happens is that there, because initially, okay, there's Jesus, there's the people of the town, and in between the two is this woman. What we want to do is for them to come up here and to be relating to Jesus in, in, in the same way that she is, right? That's the goal. You don't, want, you don't want people to just know about Jesus because of you. You want people to know Jesus personally like you do, right? And that's exactly what happens. We no longer believe because of what you said, very thing, through each and every one of our lives. through our simple testimony. Hey, I don't know everything. I don't have all the answers. There's things that you might want to know that I can't explain to you, but this much I do know. This Jesus saved my soul. Why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and, and check him out for yourself? And the beautiful thing is, is that this same Jesus is the Jesus who loves to work through the simple testimony of sinners just like you and I to bring people to himself so that they might believe, perhaps initially because of our testimony, perhaps initially because they see something genuine in our spiritual lives, or they've seen a change take place, or something else, perhaps. But ultimately, it's our goal that they would see for themselves. So let me ask you a couple of questions as I try to wrap this up. One, where do you see yourself at in these steps? Okay, if these, if there's the, I've tried to outline a a clear progression here, and I'll I'll repeat it back to you so that you can identify yourself. Where do you see yourself? Maybe you're still apart from Jesus, and you you need to have that believing moment. You need to have that salvation experience before you can go and tell others, because you can't testify to something that hasn't happened personally for you. So here's the steps. Jesus engages with the woman. Jesus points to her need for eternal life. Jesus reveals who he is. The woman then goes and tells the town. Many believe because of her testimony, but then many more believe when they see for themselves. You see how she becomes that well of life springing up within her? That eternal life comes to her first, and then it it flows out into the lives of the people around her. Where are you at? Maybe you, need, maybe you need salvation for yourself. Maybe you have already received such salvation, and it's time to start telling other people. It's time to let Jesus flow through you. It's time to let Jesus touch the people around you through your testimony. Nobody can argue with your testimony. That's the beautiful thing about testimony. They can't argue with what Jesus has done in your life. They, can, they may bring up argument, uh, disagreements they have with the Bible or with Christianity or with the church, but they cannot deny what Jesus has done in your life. So maybe it's time to start telling them in your own way, according to the, the gifts and the personality that God has given you. Make known to the people around you that Jesus has saved you. So here's my challenge. Make a list of three people this week that you want to be some sort of Jesus witness to. You want to share some part of your testimony. Or even if, if if you're like that's that's too much that's too intimate I'm not sure how to have that spiritual conversation with them yet even just invite them to come back on Christmas Eve with you. The simplicity of an invitation. I mean, she didn't understand salvation. She she didn't have all of the answers, but what she wanted was she wanted them to hear for themselves. And and I you know I can't promise you that. Jesus himself is going to show up here on Christmas Eve. But what I can promise you is that we're going to open his word through which he has revealed himself. And as best as we can today, we're going to, we're going to make known who Jesus is so that they can see for themselves. And so that they can hear the, the gospel and the testimony of other believers who have had this same experience. So make a list of a couple of people. Invite them to Christmas Eve. Share your testimony with them. Begin praying for them that they might have their eyes opened and their hearts open to believe in Jesus. But let me come back to what if you're not there yet? What if you have not received Jesus? Then I think the most important thing for you to do today is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, to believe that Jesus is who they said he is, the Savior of the world, and to put your faith and to put your trust in him to be your Savior. So as I ask the worship team to come back up, I want to ask you just to join me in prayer, to close your eyes, make, your, make yourself ready for prayer, and let's go to Jesus, this Jesus who comes to sinners and offers eternal life. And if you're here today and you need that eternal life, and you today want Jesus to be your Savior, as we pray, I want you to make that known to him. To just let him know in your own words that you want him to be your Savior. That you believe that he came. That he lived on this earth to save you. And that at the end of his life on earth, he went to the cross to die for your sin. And that he was raised on the third day to complete the victory over death on your behalf. Jesus, we come to you as sinners in need of salvation. Whether we're a a Nicodemus who's put, we do those things. Or we're a woman at the well. Who up until this moment, we've been trying to avoid all of that. We've just been living our lives the way that seems best. And in either case, we realize that doesn't work. It's not enough to be religious. And certainly not enough to ignore those things and to live according to this world. And today, we just want to confess that we need you to be our Savior. And we believe that you died for our sins, so we ask you to come. Give us eternal life. Give us the forgiveness of our sins so that we might come to you and know you. And then help us to go and be a witness, to share our testimony, to speak to others about what you have done and to invite them to come and have that same experience, to know you, Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior of the world, God who came in flesh to the earth so that we might be saved and know you for eternity. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.